Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in your Bibles in the middle part of your Bible to the book of Isaiah and chapter number 7. It's a little bit to the right of the middle part of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. And you could take that Bible and turn to page 491 in it, and you would be at Isaiah chapter 7. You know, in many ways, Christmas is a very interesting experience. And, uh, you know, you have one view of the season and all of its elements when you're a child, and you have another view of the Christmas season and all of its elements as an adult and as a parent. But, you know, as a kid growing up around the church, sometimes you can grow up around the Christmas story and you think you have a good handle on all of it, but you don't always grasp everything and understand everything that goes with the Christmas story. Illustrated by a young boy named Caleb and his older sister, uh, they were at their church uh, singing uh, one of the classic Christmas songs, Silent Night, uh, just the Sunday before Christmas. And as they were concluding the song, singing together as brother and sister, Caleb closed Silent Night with these words, sleep in heavenly beans. And his sister looked at him and she corrected him, Caleb, it's not beans, it's peas. Sleep in heavenly peas. So even when we're around the story, sometimes we don't always have all of the aspects of it quite together. And I think that's true even of us who are a little bit older. You know, we're familiar with the Christmas story, but we don't always grasp all of the significance of the Christmas story. An illustration of that would be the virgin birth. Let me just ask you this question. We'll take a little poll. How many of you during the Christmas season, somewhere at some time, have heard a message that was focused entirely on the virgin birth. So let me see some hands out there. And I, I'm seeing maybe a dozen hands. Isn't that interesting? You know, when it comes to the, the virgin birth in the church arena at large, there are some today who would say of the virgin birth, it is nothing more than a trivial, well-intentioned myth. The virgin birth is not an essential truth at all. For example, John Crossan described the virgin birth in this way. He said, the virgin birth is invented theology. He said, what was happening with the virgin birth is that the gospel authors were what he calls retrojecting. They were looking back into the past and injecting some particular information that was designed to inflate and beef up the significance of the person of Jesus. Gerd Ludemann said this, he said, modern Christians, I always like it when they use the term modern Christians, he said, modern Christians completely discount the historicity of the virgin birth, the authenticity of the virgin birth. Joseph Sprague, who is a United Methodist bishop, uh, describes the virgin birth as a, a myth. He said it's nothing more than a poetic technique. We should only understand it symbolically. And an Episcopal bishop by the name of John Spong, he basically 
classifies the virgin birth, as he says, as the entrance myth regarding Jesus and the resurrection as the exit myth regarding Jesus. See, there are some in the Christian community at large who view the virgin birth in that way. And then there are others, for example, uh, Dr. John Walvoord, who said this, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. You know, ultimately, the virgin birth relates to a question that Jesus himself posed. And that question was, who do people say that I am? And perhaps there are some here today who are younger in age, or maybe some who are younger in their faith, and you have never heard a biblical explanation of the virgin birth. And if that's true, I'm so glad that you're here, because that's what we're doing today. And I've titled the message today, The Perplexing Miracle of Christmas, The Virgin Birth. And what we're going to do in the next few moments together is we're going to zoom in on three key purposes behind the virgin birth. And what we're going to cover today uh, may be new to you. It may be review for you. But I will tell you that for me, it is a refreshing look at a wonderful truth that I never tire of at all. Now, our approach today is going to involve four elements. We're going to look at the virgin birth predicted. Then we're going to look at the virgin birth realized, the virgin birth criticized, and then the virgin birth required, why it was required. So that's where we're going as we look at this perplexing miracle of Christmas. So let's begin by looking at the virgin birth predicted, and we find that prediction in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, just to give you a little bit of a context of what's going on historically when this is written, we learn from the first verse of chapter 7 that Ahaz was king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And Judah was being threatened by Syria and by the northern kingdom of Israel, threatened militarily. And the threat was so incredible and immense that we see their reaction in verse 2. And it says, the king's heart and the heart of his people, when they heard about what was about to happen to them, shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. What an incredible picture, especially for those of us who are from Oklahoma. And you see the, the trees swaying back and forth, and that's the picture here. They were overcome with incredible fear about what was about to happen to them. And so what happens from there is that God gives to them a sign. It is a sign that the nation of Judah would not be destroyed. It is a sign that the kingly line of Judah would be safe. And the sign is designated for us in verse 14, where it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, that is the prediction. It came in the 700s B.C., and seven centuries later, we see the virgin birth 
realized. So we, we now see it predicted. We now want to go to where we see it being realized, and we see it realized in the Gospels. And so you can turn with me to first the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, this incredible prediction is focused around the person of Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, this incredible prediction is focused around another individual whose name we all know is Joseph. So we want to look at Luke chapter 1, and I want you to just follow along as I read some verses here. I'm going to begin reading with verse 26. So just keep that prediction in the back of your mind for a moment. Verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was very perplexed at this statement. She kept pondering what kind of a salutation this was. And the angel said to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty exciting statement for a girl to hear. But there was a slight problem, and the problem surfaces in verse 34. She says, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? You're telling me I'm going to have this baby and everything else, but I've never had sexual relationships with any man. And the angel responds back to her in verse 35. He says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, I want to fast forward a few weeks. We have that little picture of what's going on. As we have the prediction and then we have the realization I want to fast forward a few weeks to the Gospel of Matthew. So turn back chronologically in your Bible to Matthew 1. But these events actually happen a number of weeks later. So go to Matthew chapter 1. Now we're going to focus in on Joseph. And notice verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to look at that verse again where it says, she had been betrothed to Joseph. It's not a word that we use a lot in our culture anymore. We used to use it uh, in the United States maybe a generation or so ago. But what does it really mean? I mean, what was their actual relationship at this time? Were, were they just going together? Was she wearing his class ring from Nazareth High? I mean, what was happening here? 
Were they engaged to be married in the same way that we know engagement to be married? What was actually occurring in their relationship? Well, it's important to understand something about marriage customs in Israel. In Israel, there were two stages of marriage. Stage one is what they called betrothal. And what would happen in betrothal is the individuals and, in fact, their families would come together and they would sign a contract. And that contract would set up a 12-month period. Now, at the signing of the contract, when they are betrothed, they were legally married, but there was to be no sexual relationship between husband and wife. And, and, And the design behind this is it provided a probation period because they did not have in that day early pregnancy testing. You couldn't go to a drugstore. They just didn't have these little doctor's offices. You could walk in and get a pregnancy test. And so what they would do in this situation is they would have this probationary period of 12 months. They would do this to protect the husband's inheritance. And if the girl turned up pregnant, she could be legally divorced. The second stage of marriage in Israel was the wedding celebration. So you had this contract signing time with this 12-month probation period. And then if everything worked out fine and dandy, then there would be the wedding celebration where they would have this great feast, and then there would be the coming together of husband and wife. But we learn from verse 18 that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. They had signed the contract as families. They had obviously not yet come together sexually, and she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, it appears, and it makes sense, that when Mary had been told about the angel that she was pregnant, and and no doubt she began to experience some of the pregnancy symptoms, and and she began to grow, she never had told Joseph about this. I mean, how are you going to explain it to him? Uh, A husband, you know, to be here, I know he signed this contract, uh, but, you know, see, something happened here, and uh, I'm pregnant, and an angel came, you know, and I got pregnant. You know, she, she couldn't do that. And so it says here that she was found to be with child. I mean, you know, she began to show to the point that people realized Mary is pregnant. She is pregnant. And at this point, he had two options of what he could do. Joseph did. Number one, he could, be, he could allow there to be public disclosure in the whole community. He could openly accuse her. She would be publicly ruined. She would be ruined forever for the rest of her life. Or he could privately choose to divorce her. Notice verse 19, what he does. Joseph, her husband, because they'd signed the contract, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away, a literally technical form for divorce. To divorce her, we could easily translate secretly, just so that her reputation would would be saved. That's the plan that he wanted to follow. But when he had considered this, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, you know, to go through the feast and and finish it out. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he goes on to say, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of 
by the Lord through the prophet. We're back to the prediction from Isaiah seven centuries before. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, meaning they had the feast, but he kept her a virgin. They didn't come together sexually until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. You know, after Jesus was born, there were other children that were born, fathered by Joseph, and Mary gave birth to them. We know from Matthew 12 that he had brothers. We know from the next chapter, Matthew 13, four names of his brothers are given to us, and we know that he also had sisters. But ah, this very first pregnancy of Mary was unique. So, so we've seen the virgin birth predicted. Now we've seen the virgin birth realized. We want to take a few moments to look at the virgin birth being criticized. And there are a number of criticisms that I could bring up, but I want to just look at two very quickly this morning. The first one relates to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and it involves the Hebrew word that is translated virgin in that verse. And that Hebrew word is the Hebrew word Alma, A-L-M-A-H. And while there appears to be, in the overall usage of Hebrew in general, some flexibility with this word, what the critics say is, well, it should have never been translated virgin, it should have been just translated young woman. You know, obviously, she, she wasn't a virgin because they want to eliminate the virgin birth. And I want to make this note about that particular word, Alma, for just a few moments. What's interesting is if you take that word Alma in the Old Testament, you will find that it is never used of a married woman at all. And in the nine times it appears in the Old Testament, in every context, it implies that the person being described is a virgin. But probably the, the greatest evidence that that was the intent of God to communicate that comes from something that happened in the third century B.C., in the 3rd century B.C., they took the Old Testament, which had been written in Hebrew, and they translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, 3rd century B.C., three centuries before Christ was even born. And when they came to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and they came to the Hebrew word Alma, they chose to translate that word into Greek with the Greek word Parthenos, P-A-R-T-H-E-N, OS, and Parthenos, in every use it's ever been used in in all of the Greek language history, always means virgin. And you know, the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 1, she's described as a Parthenos. And in Matthew chapter 1, she is described as a Parthenos. And right here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we're actually quoting the Old Testament verse, and it says, Behold, the Parthenos, the virgin, will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So, unless you throw out the New Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is indeed a prediction of the virgin birth of Christ. So, that's just one illustration of a criticism that's come to the virgin birth. I want to look at a second one. 
And the second one says this. Where did they get the idea of a virgin birth? This kind of magical birth situation. And there are critics who come along and say, well, you know, the early Christians, they stole this from the pagan world. Because in the pagan religions, you had these kind of bizarre birth scenarios. And uh, Walter E. Bundy said this. He said, the idea of a supernatural or virgin birth is truly a pagan idea. Somehow it found its way into the story of Jesus. Um, They say this is just a tradition that arose from pagan ideas. Because in paganism, you see, you had gods and goddesses who would be born from other gods and goddesses. For example, in one pagan story, you have a god being begotten by a serpent intermating with another god. In another pagan story, you have someone who becomes pregnant by means of a white elephant with six large tusks who then enters into the belly of a woman. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty unpleasant experience to me. But that's part of the way paganism would teach things. For example, Pallas Athenia was said to have sprung out of the head of Zeus, her being fully grown and and having full armor on. Those are the pagan ideas, and so some critics say this all came from paganism. It was just adopted. But, you know, when you look at the biblical account, it's so different. You know, the biblical account is set in real life. It's not some wild, fanciful stories about an elephant with six tusks entering into the belly of a woman. And it's interesting to think about who writes the Gospel of Luke He basically presents this as a biological miracle. You remember who Luke is? Luke is a physician. And Luke is a historian. And Luke was an individual who had an incredibly high intellect, and he was highly, 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 highly trained, one of the most highly trained people of his day. And this physician and this historian presents this to us as a biological miracle. Now, why... Why why is all this necessary? Why do we have to talk about the virgin birth predicted, the virgin birth realized, and the virgin birth criticized? Why are we spending time doing this? Well, that leads us to the fourth thing we want to look at, and that is the, the virgin birth required. And there are numerous reasons we could look at on why it is required, but I simply want to look at three of them this morning. The first reason why the virgin birth was required was to reveal God to us, to reveal God to us. I want to share with you part of a Christmas story told many years ago by Paul Harvey. It goes like this. This man was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent man. He was upright in his dealings with other people, He just did not believe in all that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to the church this Christmas Eve. He said he would feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather stay at home, but that he would wait up for them as they went to that Christmas Eve midnight service. 
Shortly after the family drove away in the car, the snow began to fall. He went to the windows to watch the flurries slowly getting heavier and heavier, then went back to his fireside chair where he began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, and and then another. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against the living room window. But when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they had tried to fly through his large picture window. Well, he decided he couldn't let those poor creatures lie out there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children kept their pony. That would provide warm shelter if he could just direct the birds to the barn. So he put on his coat and his boots, and he tramped through the deepening snow out to the barn. He opened the doors up wide, and he turned on a light in the barn. But the birds did not come in. And uh, as he thought through it, he he figured that um, food, oh, food, that would entice them. All I need is a little bit of food. And so he went back to the house, and he got a loaf of bread, and he made these breadcrumbs, and he sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail all the way to the lighted, wide, open doorway of the barn. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried touching them. He tried chewing them. He he tried to get them into the barn by walking around and waving his arms, but instead they scattered in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized what was the matter. They were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them but to help them, but how in the world can I do that? Any move that he made tended to frighten them, to confuse them. They wouldn't follow him. They wouldn't be led or shooed because they feared him. He said, if only I could be a bird and I could mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid and show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But then I'd have to be one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. And at that very moment, The church bells began to ring, and the sound reached his ears above the storm through the wind that was blowing, and he stood there listening to the bells. O come, all ye faithful, the glad tidings of Christmas. And he sank to his knees in the snow. You see, one reason why the virgin birth was required is to reveal God to us. You know, God reveals himself in creation, in the incredible world that he has created, the distance of the stars and the moon, the the detail of everything. We can see his eternal power and his divine nature. We can know that there has to be a God. But that revelation is extremely limited. In John chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, No man has seen God at any time. You know, no God has really seen all that God can be. But he goes on to say, the only begotten, Jesus, has explained him. In other words, Jesus has brought out some hidden things about God, brought them out into the open. 
Without the virgin birth and without the incarnation, we would be unaware that God was a personal being. You know, some people say they believe in God. You know, God's way out there someplace. He's never involved with people. He just sort of created this and left it run. Without the virgin birth and the incarnation, we wouldn't know that God is a personal being. We wouldn't know that God is concerned about our needs. We wouldn't know that God desired to deliver us out of our peril that we were in. That's what the virgin birth is all about. It's all about the mighty God himself coming down and becoming a baby. What does that story scream at us? God cares about me. So the virgin birth is required. It's required first to reveal God to us. It's required secondly to provide redemption for us. You know, like begets like. Dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. Sinful men beget sinful men. And if you are a parent, you know how true that is. You know, you have these new ones who are born, who are so wonderful and such, but you know, it is automatically demonstrated rather quickly that they are tainted with a sinful tendency. At the moment of conception, the sinful nature is passed on. And so you can have these children, but you're going to find out that the sinful nature was passed on. We sin because we are a sinner. We have a tendency to do wrong things and behave contrary to the character of God because it was passed on to us. See, God cannot declare a sinner righteous unless they are righteous. But we're born sinful. So how is he going to do that? And the answer is, God, who has no sin, would come down and take up a human body. It is very likely that the sin nature is probably transmitted through the man. In other words, when you have a man and woman coming together and you're going to create a new life, we know that the sinful nature is passed on, and in all probability, it comes through the male participant. You remember, Adam was a representative of the entire human race. You have this principle of some headship that's involved. And in all likelihood, the sin nature is passed through the male participant. Thus, we have the Holy Spirit of God who fertilizes an egg in Mary. And you end up with God in a human body and a child that does not have sin. You see, he had to be God in order to be free from sin, and he had to be man in order to pay man's penalty for sin. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You see, if Joseph were the father of Jesus, or anybody else for that matter, then Jesus Christ could not be God. 
And if he was not God, all of his claims that he made were lies. And as this is what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15. Then our salvation is completely worthless, and we're still in our sins. We're still going to pay the debt of judgment that God levied upon us. You see, the virgin birth, men and women, it is not a trite, insignificant fact at all. In fact, I love the words of Robert Gramacki. He said this, to confess the virgin birth is to confess the deity of Christ. To confess the deity of Christ is to confess the virgin birth. They are inseparable Siamese twins. Conversely, to deny the virgin birth is to deny the deity of Christ. To deny the deity of Christ is to deny the virgin birth. He goes on to say, no person can logically accept one and reject the other. Christ is not God because he was virgin born, but because he was and is God, he had to be virgin born to obtain true humanity. He is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And only he could pay the price that humanity needed to pay. You see, the virgin birth is required. It's required to reveal God to us. It's required to provide redemption for us. And thirdly, I want us to see that the virgin birth is required to set an example for us. Take uh, your Bibles and turn a number of books to the right uh, to the book of Philippians. You'll go past First and Second Corinthians and then Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians chapter number And when you get to Philippians 2, I want to read beginning with verse 5 and just have you follow along. Paul writes in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or be held tightly to, But rather, he emptied himself, he laid aside some privileges, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an amazing statement. Now, what was the first phrase out of the section that I just read? What was the very first phrase? We start reading in verse 5. What's the first phrase talking about? What's that? Have this attitude. In other words, what is the attitude and the example that we are to follow? Well, it's actually delineated in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from... Selfishness, we're not to operate out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not just look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. See, part of the reason for the virgin birth is to set an example for us. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. What is the pattern to be for my life? How I'm living my life? 
that I'm not here to be served by other people, but I'm here to serve. You see, that is our pattern that the virgin birth gives to us. I want you to have your eyes drop back to verses 3 or four and 4 there in Philippians 2. And I just want you to look over the phrases. And while you're looking over those phrases, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is this descriptive of my life? You know, would my name fit in here? Oh, when you think about Bruce, you think about someone who doesn't really operate out of selfishness in his life. But with humility of mind, he regards other people as even more important than himself. He doesn't really look out for his own interests, but he also is looking out for the interests of others. See, in a very practical way, the virgin birth has the rubber of that truth meeting the road here. Not something we just think about at Christmas time. You see, it's supposed to actually make a difference in how we live our life. It's important that we learn the truth of the virgin birth, but we realize that learning truth always is to work out to where we are living that truth out in our life. The virgin birth is not some sort of a trite, insignificant academic thing. It is a wonderful truth that we should never tire hearing about. And as we go through this season, the next few days, it would be important, I think, for us to remember that the virgin birth was required. It was required to reveal God to us. And so as you go through Christmas in the next number of days, just look for lessons in it. What was this designed to tell me about God? What was this designed to tell me about His love for me? What does this tell me about how much He has an interest in me? As you go through the Christmas season, we need to remember the virgin birth is required to provide redemption for us. We ought to be giving thanks. I mean, more than any other time, perhaps, this ought to be a time when our cup of thanksgiving is overflowing. And then as we go through the season, we need to remember the virgin birth was required to set an example for us. And we need to think about that because maybe sometimes this time of year we can, we can get a little bit blue. We can feel sorry for ourselves about certain things. I'm not going to be with these people. I'm not going to be around relatives. Maybe I'm not, you know, and we just forget. This is a time for being thankful. This is a time for following his example. And as you gather with people, what a great thought to be thinking, you know what, I want to, I want to, I want to serve them. I don't want to be just thinking about me. I want to think about them. I want to put their interests ahead of myself. Isn't it amazing that the Christmas story is such that it, it's easy for us to be so familiar with it without really pondering the significance of it? It's interesting how we can sing songs at Christmas time. And we know them, you know, and we just sing them. They're, they're familiar Christmas songs, and yet we forget to really look at the words and what we are proclaiming when we sing them. One of those songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Just think, let's think about these words for a moment. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, Offspring of the virgin's womb, 
veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. And may that be our theme over the next few days. Glory to the newborn King. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this incredible truth of the virgin birth. And may we never even begin to think for a moment, this is some sort of insignificant thing. May it make a difference in how we remember what you've done for us in our gratitude. May it make a difference even how we live and conduct ourselves over the next few days. That we would have the same attitude in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. That we're here to serve other people. To put their needs ahead of our own. And Father, I know that if you will refresh us in that perspective, that Jesus Christ will be honored and glorified. And we pray these things in His great, mighty, and wonderful name. Amen.